Hi, and welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I'm your host, Jen Milius, and I'm so glad that you're here and can't wait to introduce to you Emma G. Rose. Emma G. Rose is a main author, podcast host, and publisher. She intended to become an intrepid girl reporter like Nellie Bly. Then she spent Christmas Eve standing on a riverbank waiting for rescue divers to pull a body from the water. That's when she stopped waiting and wandered off to explore the world instead. Somewhere out there, she discovered indie publishing, which allowed her to publish a book a year since 2019. Now she hosts the Indie Book Talk podcast, where she and co-host Shelly Shearer explore the expanding world of indie books. Let's dive into the pond and meet Emma. Welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I am so excited to bring to you Emma G. Rose. Emma, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I am so glad you're here, Emma, and I would love for you to start with how'd you get into writing? I have wanted to be a writer since I realized that books were written by people and not by magic. (laughs) And I mean, they're a little magic, right? But mostly by people. And so I was probably 10 or 11 the first time it occurred to me that what I was seeing authors do was something that I could potentially do. And I was copying poems from one book into a notebook and sort of like collecting these things, which I think is a very early sign that you want to be a writer when you start (laughs) like writing down other people's stuff and sort of collecting it into, into these notebooks. And I knew I wanted to do that, but was also given this sort of realistic lens of you can't make money as a writer, uh, which spoiler alert is false, uh, but it is difficult to make money as primarily a novelist. And so I was encouraged to do some other things so that I could, in fact, make money and have a business and a career. And so I went to journalism school. And I went to the University of Maine, studied journalism, interned at the local paper here. Uh, And by local, I mean about three quarters of the state is covered by this paper. Uh, It's a big state with a small population. So I worked at the paper and I really thought I was going to be a journalist. I had these visions of being like Nellie Bly. Do you know who Nellie Bly is? Yes, yes. Okay. My undergrad's in journalism too. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. So for those who might not know, Nellie Bly uh, was a reporter, uh, a woman reporting at a time when women weren't really allowed to do cool stories. And Nellie Bly got herself committed to a mental institution to report on what it was like inside, uh, imprisoned in a women's prison to report on what it was like inside. She traveled around the world in 80 days, like the Jules Verne novel, because she could and because she wanted to see whether it was possible. Uh, so she did all kinds of really cool stuff. And I thought I was going to be just like her. And I was like, okay. Uh, and then I ended up on the bank of a river on Christmas Eve, waiting for rescue divers to pull a body out of the water. Wow. I was there as a journalist. I was there to report on this tragedy that had happened. And um, one man had gotten to shore who was in the canoe and the other man hadn't. And they'd been out on Christmas Eve. So it was very cold here in Maine. There was ice on the water. There were a lot of things going on there. But I remember standing on the riverbank and thinking, oh, I don't want to do this. 
I don't want this to be how I'm in the world, what I'm doing every day. And had a little crisis of faith and confidence in what was I going to do next and how was I going to use the only thing I really felt like I knew how to do, which was to write and tell stories. How was I going to use that to be a functional adult in society? And I probably wouldn't have figured it out as quickly as I did, except that one, it was the only skill I felt like I really had a grasp on at 20 years old. And two, uh, the year I graduated, my cousin Nicholas died by suicide. Mm. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, it's been 14 years now, and his birthday actually just passed. Um, but it was a life changing event. It was kind of my, it's part of my origin story is like, how did I get here? Is that this happened in our family? to our family, to me. And I did not know how to deal with it. To complicate this big feeling, I was also living on the other side of the planet because after I graduated, I moved to Japan and lived there for two years. Yeah. Uh, So I am on the other side of the planet. I am grieving someone who's younger than me, who was about to graduate from high school, who was like, you know, very much on the cusp of a future the last person you would think would be the person to leave, right? And I started writing because again, it was all I knew how to do. And I started writing a book. Originally I wrote it just for me, but it sort of ballooned into something else. And that's how I started writing. And you know, what I'm hearing out of this is sometimes when you have an event that is a distinctive before and after, there is something very cathartic about writing to help you move through that moment and then the after, because when you're writing, it allows you a space to get things out of your head and put them down on paper. And it's not meant for everyone else. And if it becomes something you share with other people, those very first pages probably aren't those things you're sharing, but it sounds to me like the space that you had to write enabled you to process, enabled you to grieve and enabled Mm -hmm. you to figure out like you started to see something, some some beauty that came through that. And so would you talk a little bit about that? Would you talk a little bit about how that writing started to transform a little bit where you started to feel like maybe I can do something with this? So when I first started writing this, um, I was not intending to write anything. I was, I can remember it very clearly laying on the floor of my apartment. Uh, I was reading a Terry Pratchett novel. And as I'm reading and I'm trying to focus on my reading, these two characters start arguing in the back of my mind. (laughs) And this is a thing that happens to me sometimes. I don't know that it happens to everyone, but it does happen to me where sometimes an idea or, or a a fictional person will sort of insert themselves into my world. And so these two characters, teenagers, and I I got that from their argument, um, are trying to figure out whether they're dead or not. And they're having this like kind of snarky teenage debate about whether or not they're dead. So that's where I started this adventure. And as I worked on it and as I started writing it, I, first of all, had to explore beliefs about death and the afterlife, 
because the two characters die and it's not really a spoiler it's in the second chapter so the two characters die in the second chapter and the adventure is their journey through the afterlife so I started researching what does the afterlife look like in different faith traditions in different mythologies how does that look and then I also started to research into people's experiences with death either near-death experiences or people who had attempted suicide and then survived um, and as I researched these things it first of all gave me a distance right it gave me like space between this terrible event that had happened and myself but it also created a sense of community there were so many people who had experienced something like this there were so many people you know everyone in all of history has died right everyone you know will die you will die mm -hmm. and that realization can be comforting if you allow it to be and if you allow it to sort of invite you into the human community so as I'm, I'm discovering all these things and I'm realizing all these things, I had this desire to share it with my friends and family as a way to say, look what I learned about death. Look what I learned about loss and grief. And when I did that, I started to get feedback of this really helped me. I felt better after reading this. Even I was very nervous at first to share it with my uncle, the, the father of my cousin who died. And I, you know, I gave him a preface of here's what it is. And, you know, I hope this is okay. And I really want your approval before I do anything with it, but will you read this? And he said, it made him feel better. It made him feel like there was like a place for my cousin to go, you know, like he's, he wasn't in our lives constantly, but he was somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that feedback, that sense that it was helping my family made me think, oh, wow maybe this is going to help other families or other people. And maybe whether I keep writing books or not, maybe I really need to find a way to get this one out into the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in its own way, you had a form of beta readers. Yeah. Like you had your form of, and, and the concept of just writing a piece and having someone else who might be a, a reader who would appreciate it. So that the idea of what a beta reader is, how you work with them, you kind of did that probably without even realizing that was the case. It was just, it just felt like a natural extension of what you were doing. So you were following like little nudges. It sounds like this little nudge came and you followed it. And then this little nudge came and you followed it. And it was almost kind of what I'm almost hearing is like someone taking a hand with grief and walking through a process and it's like, I'll, I'll hold your hand and I'll kind of walk this through with you. And that's really cool because it sounds like your book was offering that hand to the next person who read your book. Yes. Yes. And that's the hope that by, by framing this in a fantasy, right. By making this, making there be sort of magical elements by personifying death as a guy with a clipboard and a polo shirt uh, <laughs> by having an afterlife with pay phones and factories and libraries, a library. Uh, I created a space that felt like a safer way to engage with scary ideas. Yeah. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that fantasy can do that all writing can do, but that fantasy in particular is really good at 
is taking an idea that's difficult, that's challenging, that's scary, and maybe pulling its teeth a little bit and saying, okay, I'll give you just one little bit of this at a time. And you don't have to make the immediate connection that this could be me, this could be my cousin, this could be my brother. You can go right to, okay, this is a story and it's safe. Mm-hmm. Stories are not safe. That's the, that's the secret, but they feel safe at first. Uh, but you know, one of the things that you're, as I was listening to you, the thing that was coming to me is a, a you know, a technique, a term that we're using in the writing space of world building. So what I was hearing, I love how death is personified with polo shirt and a clipboard. That's hysterical to me. <laughs> kind of like, I have numbers here, people kind of a thing, but on top of it, that you created a world. So would you talk a little bit about the world and how you, how you created it? Because you know, when you're thinking about world building, you're thinking about there's systems that you need to kind of put in place, like physical things that they're bumping up against, that they have their own world. It's not just that they can go do whatever they want, because whatever they do has to have some kind of consequence. It's just a consequence in their, in their world. So how did you go about world building in this, in this, in this space you created? Without realizing it, I actually made myself a really safe sandbox because I started to, first of all, did a ton of research into what does the afterlife look like Mm -hmm. in different cultures, different mythologies, whatever. So I could pull those things. And so I had like these archetypal ideas. So the river sticks appears, Mm -hmm. but the river sticks is an art installation and it sort of looks like a giant slip and slide. And there's a boat on wheels with, so I took ideas that you would recognize. And then I sort of broke them or twisted them. I think that's a really great world building technique. But when you look at the wider framework, um, in the afterlife, you cannot feel pain, which means you can do something like jump off a four-story building and not get hurt. You can scare the people around you, but you won't get hurt. Uh, In the afterlife, they don't breathe. Those automatic processes aren't happening. So those are things that by adding them in, it allowed me to play with what does it mean to be alive? What, what does it mean to breathe? And would you miss that if you stopped doing it? Um, And then I also created this idea that they, I needed them to be able to get from point A, which was essentially a doctor's office to point Z, which was this city that I needed them to get to. And so I created this sort of idea of a force. Like there was something, this sort of instinct that was pulling them the same way that you have an instinct that pulls you toward growth, right? As a human being, you just, you have no choice, but to grow in some way, whether you like it or not. And so they were being pulled by this, but what does that mean? That means they can't go backwards. Um, It means that if they go off the path, something bad could happen, right? So you had, I had to like create the ideas, but then once I'd created the idea or created the structure, I had to work within it. And sometimes really interesting things would happen if you created the structure and then asked, okay, then what? So everything that's in the afterlife is uh, a few years behind in technology, which is why they have pay phones, even though back <laughs> home they'd have a cell phone, right? Um, they're, they, most of the things that are in the afterlife are things that have, quote, died. So there are things that have been lost, things that have been damaged, things that have been, you know, landfilled, 
can end up in the afterlife in different places. And so I had to make spaces for those things to exist without having the afterlife be a giant trash dump because I didn't really like that motif. Um, so there's a factory that only manufactures old things. And because there's a factory that only manufactures old things, and this is super weird, there's a professor who's trying to figure out why does the factory only manufacture old things? He's like doing expeditions and trying to research this in the absence of a research structure of having, you know, peer reviewed papers and other people's work to work off of, he's trying to figure this out. And in figure in, in trying to figure this out, he's interacting with, with the main characters in a way that's different from somebody who might just be wandering around to see what's going on. So the world building was really create an idea right here and then figure out what the consequences of that idea over here might be. And I am a pantser. So I make it up as I go along, especially with this book where I had no idea when I started writing the book, I didn't even know I was writing the book. So I certainly didn't know what the end was going to look like. So a lot of it was my discovery of, okay, if I establish that this is true, then what does that mean four chapters later when they end up in this situation? And yeah, so world building at its best, I think is just, here's an idea. What if, then what? What does this mean to someone and how might different people interact with this idea? So I love that you have a, char a character in there who's basically questioning the world that he's in of this. I'm the professor. I'm, I'm doing this research. And it almost sounds like he's in disbelief of where he is. So he's going to figure out why he's there and what's going on and questioning the main characters like, well, don't you see how this is weird too? You need to be helping me through this. And they're like, what are you talking about? Dude? <laughs> There's nobody else who's questioning this, but you, what is the deal? So it sounds like this character, this professor became a, an interesting and, and very integral character. He became a very important character. It sounds like to, to help your main characters move as well. Well, it's in reality, everyone they met was someone important. And that was the, the beauty also of the afterlife is that there aren't a lot of extra people around. You sort of only interact with the people that you need to interact with because everyone has their own path in the afterlife. So my two main characters, Jack and Anna are traveling together because they died together. Uh, but most people travel the afterlife on their own and there are sort of gathering points. So there is this gathering point where they meet the professor but they also meet a character who is my cousin, Nick. And he, we get to see him work through those feelings of, I did this, I died by suicide. Oh, wow, that was a, not the choice I would have made now, right? And it was this, I was allowed to explore that. Um, they later on, without giving too many spoilers, they meet a group of people who are 100% in denial. We are not in the afterlife. This is just another test. This is just you know a new way of living and we still have to follow all the old rules to the point that they teach themselves to consciously breathe, even though they don't need to. And so it's really just, it was an opportunity to just play with all of these ideas and, and these conceptions of what the afterlife might look like. Um, and then there also is some jump back to real life, to the people they left behind, because I felt like that was a really important part that the dead may not be able to interact with you, but you remember that. And so we jump back to Anna's brother and Jack's sister and experience what they're experiencing. And their parts of the story are really sad and challenging and hard, but I didn't have to stay there for very long 
right? If I had just written a book about grief, which I did later, uh, it can be very heavy, but in being able to jump back to this fantasy world that even though they were dead, they were still in this fantasy world. So it was like a little bit easier. Um, Later on, I went and I wrote Ella's story, Jack's little sister. And so I dealt with her grief many years later. She's 11 years older. She's reaching the same age as her brother was when he died. And that's a really challenging time for a lot of people. If somebody died and they were older than you, when you hit that surpassing them point, it's very hard. And so Ella is in that moment of her life where she's starting to surpass what her brother achieved. And it's very scary and it's very strange. And so that ended up being a whole other fantasy story that also interestingly helped me deal with my long-term grief in a way I didn't really anticipate. That sounds like, I mean, I really love how you are showing how writing, how storytelling can be, I mean, this still feels cathartic, just listening to you talk about it, listening to these characters, the way it processes, I mean, just the whole, really what I hear you that you did for yourself was you gave yourself permission to just to write, to see what came through, to follow your curiosity, to unpack when you needed to, to work through some scenes, maybe more so than other scenes. And you gave yourself permission to say, okay, this might be a little bit harder to write today. So I'm going to do the best I can for the time I can. And then the next time I pick it up, I'll pick up another part or I'll switch to the next part. I make sure I end in a fun space. I'll start with this. And I still make sure when I wrap up my writing for the day, I work still on the fantasy side because that was that still brings the joy. So it feels you know lighter as I'm leaving this space so I can come back into it again when I need to. So those are some of the things I'm picking up on that you were really doing was giving yourself permission. And, and sometimes we need to do that with, with regardless of whatever it is we're writing, because it can feel pretty scary when you're putting it to paper and then you're judging it. You're judging, is this mm-hmm. good? You're judging, is this okay? And oh my gosh, you're going to share it with other people. And will they judge this too? And you have to give yourself permission to feel like it's okay and work through whatever that is as you're going. And when you feel really good about it, it's easier. It doesn't make it easy. It just makes it easier to be able to share and be okay with that. So, I mean, when you were working through, so the first book, we're working through that. It brings about a second book. All the while, it's helping you process. It's helping your your healing, your healing journey, really. And mm-hmm. so how did you feel like you, how did you know when you wanted to put certain elements in of your own healing, being responsible about the, the whole process while honoring the space of the book or, and honoring your own space, you know, just to make like striking that balance. It is a hard balance to strike where I want to talk about these things, but I'm also very aware that There are ways of talking, especially about things like suicide, where you can do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. I, when I was in journalism school, we learned about um, the idea that suicide was contagious, which was a concept that came up in journalism where they basically said, we can't write about it at all because people will copycat. And what was uncovered from that is that that's not really true. It's the way you talk about it. 
So when you glamorize this act as there's at least one book in the market right now that's pointed to as like, oh, you should read this as a teen because it's about suicide and mental health. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's about glamorizing this very final choice. I wouldn't recommend it. But there are ways to talk about it that are exploring the idea, exploring the feelings while still leaving space for hope. While saying you are in a very, very dark place right now, but there is a a way out. And sometimes that way out is personified as a character. Sometimes it's a conversation or an interaction that changes the way somebody thinks. And those I'm trying to share through my writing tools that people can use to help themselves experience these feelings and to work through them. So in Assembling Ella, Ella starts out very closed off. She believes that no one cares about what happened to her as much as she does, which is sort of true. No one can possibly care as much as you do, right? about your own experience, but she's also unwilling to give anyone the chance to dig in and help her or get to know what the the experience really is. But she's using art. So she's building assembly sculptures. That's sculptures made out of bits and pieces of other things, mostly of broken toys. She's building these assembly sculptures as a a mode of self-expression, as a way to say, this is what I believe about the world. Artistic expression is a really, really great way to get through all of your feelings, grief, joy, anything you're feeling. Any sort of expression can help you do that because it allows you that space, just like writing, to say, hey, there's room between me and this feeling. There's an interpretation I can take here. And so Ella does that and she uses that art and eventually it becomes the entry point to allow other people in, right? There is a fantasy element. This fantasy character is trying to help her. More than anything, he becomes a foil because he's not really helping. He just thinks he is. Um, But he's trying really hard and just not understanding humans. Uh, And together, they sort of solve this problem, which is I am unwilling to fully experience my grief. I think I'm experiencing it because I'm obsessing over it, but I'm not experiencing it because I'm not working through it. So whenever I'm writing about grief, loss, or any level of mental or physical health challenge, I'm constantly trying to get my characters to the point where they get help from somebody who can help them. Sometimes that's a mythical creature, yes, or a god in my mythology world that's being built here. But most of the time, it's a parent, a teacher, a professional. It's a friend who's been there, or maybe a friend who hasn't, but can just give them perspective. So my message is always, you are not alone in this. And your pain comes from the idea that you're alone in this. So you can be hurting, you can be grieving, you can be suffering, and all of those things have been felt before. All of those experiences, everybody knows somebody who's died. And if you don't, you just haven't lived long enough. So. I'm always trying to pay attention to how I talk about these things, pay attention to the the latest research on how do we have these conversations, on the latest research of what works to help people work through grief. You know, there are things that 20 years ago they would have told you to do that today are like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that, right? 
Um, and there are things that are latest research things right now that I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. So I can't in good conscience say, oh, you should do this. So it is a balance to try to talk about all of this in a, in a way that brings hope. But the magic of that is that if I have to find the hope for someone else, I have to find the hope for my reader, I have to find it for myself first. I can't share with you something I don't already know. So writing Ella, dealing with that long-term grief, that long-term effect of grief forced me to find the hope, to find the way forward. Otherwise, I couldn't have finished the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is powerful. That is so, so powerful because you're right that you took your character. She had to go on a journey. She had a transformation in it. And really, this also helped you in your own process. But in doing so, like you said, it's going to help. It helps your reader. And that's just that to me is such a beautiful gift that when your reader picks up that story and says, I, I thank you, or I feel like you get me, or I need this book has caused me to want to talk to someone. Can we, I just read this and I need to talk about what I read because that is like a continuation of that book. And it's like the reader started it, but, or the author started it rather, but the reader's continuing it in another way. And you don't ever know if that book got forward, you know, Hey, you want to read this and gives it to somebody else because that ripple effect, that ripple effect always happens. You just don't always know that it's happened. And so to trust that your work, that what you have created is serving someone else in a way, I think that that's the magic of continuing to write and continuing to, to, to share your work because you are making a positive difference. And I have to tell you, this is like amazing, Emma. How can people connect with you? How can they, where can they, where can they connect with you? Where can they get your books? You are amazing. Thank you. Well, first of all, um, I do speak at schools. And one of the things that always happens when I speak at schools is that a kid will come up to me. And I mean, a kid, like as young as middle school, will come up to me and say, I lost someone. What do I do now? Or listening to you made me realize I wasn't alone. So that ripple effect is so real. And it happens not just in the writing of the book and in the reading of the book, but in me getting to talk to people about it, in being here and talking to you. So if people are interested in that sort of thing and want to hear more about it, um, you can go to emmagauthor.com is where all my everything is, including places to connect with me. I'm big on social media in that I will, I post, but I will talk to you if you talk to me. So if you have questions, if you want to talk to me, um, I'm on Instagram as life underscore imperative. My publishing house is imperative press. So that's where that come from. Um, I have Emma G writer on Twitter, but I also have uh, indie book talk on Twitter because we are the indie book talk podcast, talk about all things related to indie publishing. Um, and then I am sort of dipping my toe into TikTok, and you can find me there. I believe I'm Emma G author on TikTok, uh, but all my social medias are linked through uh, my website. So I would recommend go there first and then find the social media that works for you. Awesome. Emma, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad you were here and know there were some valuable nuggets shared to keep going, keep writing, and keep sharing your work. I'm a big believer that if you have a book that's in your heart to write, then there's someone else out there who needs to read it. Your story needs to be shared, so you have to write it and get it out into the world. Until next time, keep swimming upstream while going with the flow and get your book into the world. To learn more about Tough Fish and jump into the pond, visit jennifermilius.com forward slash tough fish.